Hey folks, thanks for joining me on Ultra Habits. I'm your host, RJ Singh. My show is dedicated to all things executive. Here, we understand the unique challenges of executive life and the things that will no doubt come up in your business and personal life that have the potential to impact you negatively. On this show, we interview the world's top minds from the fields of business, medical, military, sports, the sciences, academia, and much, much more. Our goal is to leave you after every episode with more knowledge, wisdom, and awareness that ultimately help you improve your habits and move you and keep you at peak performance. Enjoy. And again, folks, thanks for joining me. How do you end a 72-year championship drought? When Paul Roos entered the Sydney Swans, he knew that the club would have to transform in order to meet its objectives. Paul embarked on a rigorous transformation program within the management and playing team that would ultimately see the end of a drought of the coveted premiership. On the show today, we uncover the steps he took to do this, the philosophy that guided his thought process and the decisions that he made. In the highly competitive game of the AFL, where dynasties aren't mainstays, any given year a club can win. Club and fan demands are extraordinary in this sport. The expectation is that winning matters. If this is the environment that you are leading in, you're going to want to check this show out. Enjoy, folks. Have a great week. Paul, welcome to Ultra Habits, man. It looks super, super sunny in your background. I wish I was at wherever you are. <laughs> How are you? Yeah, I'm good, mate. Yeah, and no, I've moved to Hawaii, so that's a pretty cruisy place to live. So I, I, the irony is I came here in 1984 on a, a trip, a pre-season trip for when I was playing at Fitzroy, and we stayed probably about a kilometre and a half away from where I am now. And I was talking to one of my old teammates a couple of days ago, and we were reminiscing about but yeah, it's quite ironic as a 20-year-old coming here and training and preparing for the season and now back yeah. here to live, which I'm I'm really enjoying. So yeah, I'm very reluctant to talk to my Melbourne friends when it gets towards winter when they say, oh, what's the weather like outside Rusey Guard? Oh, don't worry about it. It's just a little bit warmer than where it is where you are. Yeah. Yeah. I think the biggest adjustment for me being back in Melbourne is the darkness. Like I'm, I'm a guy yeah. that really feels the lack of sunlight and- yeah. Being really conscious about how that affects my moods and making sure that I'm, you know, taking extra vitamin D. I'm out in the yeah. light. Um, it is. It can get challenging, particularly in in Olinda, where I live, where it's just always shrouded. But um, you know how that goes. Yeah, and I think I think the, I mean, the amazing thing is it's probably common sense. It, it is incredible when we come back to Hawaii. It is such a healthy lifestyle. The sun is just yeah drives a lot of you. Yeah, habits. You know, it's, it's yeah. really amazing. So you you have to be really intentional when you're living in a place like Melbourne. That's what I noticed. And being in footy, obviously, we were intentional because you had to train and and you got good habits. But you do have to be intentional. Whereas in Hawaii, yeah, you wake up seven o'clock, meditate. Yeah. Then I just go down the yeah. park, go for a run because the the weather draws you out of yeah. the house. You know, it's so yeah. it's really been it's really been quite fascinating living in that in that scenario. Yeah. Yeah, when I moved from Melbourne in 2010, you know, I was living in Blackburn and I moved to yeah. New South Wales and they set us up in Coogee. I was like, what is this place, right? You go from are... Blackburn to Coogee, right? Coogee. And, yeah. and I was a single dude and like, I'm like, what is going on here? Where have I been? But, um, you know, Victoria is beautiful too. I think, you know, I was yeah. talking to a guy about it yesterday. Like it's, it still feels like a big 
small town. Like it's a major yeah. financial center, but you kind of are like five to 10 degrees of separation from running into people you know. Would you agree with that? Well, it's interesting because people always ask me all the time about the difference between Sydney and Melbourne. If you try to compare the two, it's impossible. If, you, yeah. if you're coming from Sydney to duplicate your lifestyle in Sydney, you can't do it. Because the beach no. is, I lived in Coogee, yeah. yeah, South Coogee before we left. The the bay is beautiful, Port Melbourne, Albert yeah. Park, Middle Park, but it's not Coogee. So yeah. if you're comparing the two, you're going to get frustrated either way. Because Melbourne is probably a bit more European. You get in the city and there's a nice alleyways and restaurants and then you got you know the Australian yeah. Open and the MCG and the city and they're just vastly different cities both have their their strengths clearly and both are really enjoyable cities to live in but they're just really different yeah yeah so uh you know I think my wife and I talked about this whole thing around you know stopping the comparing and the comparisons yeah. and really I think that helped us start to rebuild a life yeah. out here in a community which is quite tight-knit and, you know, I think whenever we try to compare or we get a bit, you know, nostalgic, that can, that can create issues. And I think it's about being present and, and, and being grateful and finding the value in where we're at. Um, yeah, and uh, I think that's right because it's, because I'd been to Melbourne first, then gone to Sydney and then come back to Melbourne. I think I had that, um, it was harder for probably Tammy because she didn't spend as much time in Melbourne. But again, it's so vastly different. You know, one of the good things about Melbourne, people love connecting. In Sydney, it's like, oh, you live in Manly? Oh, yeah. no, I can't get across to Manly. I'm like, what do you mean you can't? Yeah. Hang on. Yeah. Like, it was in Melbourne. But, yeah, yeah. I lived in Brighton and Elwood when I went back. And then mum's out in, my mum's out in, um, you know, East Ringwood. No worries. Just jump in the car, drive down the Monash Freeway, head, head, head to no problems at all. Or, yeah. yeah, meet some friends. But, and and that's one of the big positives of there's a lot more connection in Melbourne. Sydney is very, yeah. Oh no, I can't. I can't leave the eastern yeah. suburbs. I, I can't yeah. leave. The, yeah. I'm not going across the Sprint Bridge. Yeah. I'm like, yeah. Oh wow. Okay. It's it's fascinating, isn't it? It's it's divided by the water. Definitely. You know, I lived yeah. in the Sutherland Shire uh, for a little bit, and you know, people there didn't get across <laughs> Terran Point. You know, and you know, it's it's interesting when you're a global citizen to kind of get caught up in the nuances of the local community and even when I where I live in Olinda, like people don't get off yep. the hill. Like it's a big deal yeah. to go to the basin or Montrose. And yeah. Um but I want to to start to dive into uh, your your story, Paul, particularly with the Sydney Swans. Now, you know, I grew up in, in California, very similar area to your wife Tammy, and I remember reading your book she was talking about, I think when she met you, she didn't really realize. Yeah how big AFL is. She's like, oh yeah, you're, you're kind of involved in Australian rules. Okay, whatever. And, and I too, uh, didn't realize the profound culture of AFL. Yeah. You compare it across any sport globally. I mean, the fans are crazy. It's generational, uh, super competitive. And I think cause it's primarily Victoria, it's even more, uh, strong in terms of it's, it's culture as a sport. So I did read your book. My father-in-law is a mad swan supporter. And, you know, I thought, okay, I'll pick up this book. And it was a really, really good read. And I got a lot out of it. So, you know, I had to get you on the show. So let's rewind the clock yep. to the early 2000s. You, you know, I I did some research and, you know, I 
I, I kind of came across this piece where you got some support from one of your guys or one of your friends that was in IT to help you create a presentation yeah. to the Swans uh, board. Start, start there. What was that process like and what did you actually have to present to them? Yeah, it was fascinating because I got the coaching job 10 weeks ago in 2002. And for those Swans fans probably remember, I, we did pretty well. And then there was some talk about Terry Wallace, um, who was a really experienced coach in Melbourne getting the job. And there was a bit of controversy in the last game. There was a choose ruse campaign, et cetera, et cetera. And the only reason I bring that up is because it's a friend of mine who was a reporter, Neil Cordy, rang me around after that event happened, you know, knowing that Terry Wallace was probably the favorite to get the job from the board and CEO, but I'd won six games and the players seemed to respond to what I did. And and Cord said, Oh mate, I heard you I heard you presenting the board. I said, No, nah, not that I know of. And I said, he goes, Well mate, I reckon you probably should. And I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, Well maybe they don't want to tell you because if you don't turn up they can give the job to Terry Wallace. So it's sort of a bit of a funny joke between the two of us. So I rec- I actually rang Andrew Ireland, who was my football manager at the time. I said, mate, um do I need to present to the board? And he said, Yeah, I, I reckon that's probably a good idea. So and yeah, I was a little bit probably upset that I hadn't been told. Although I'm sure they would have told me to be honest, because um, but it was in hindsight it was really good. Now I'm not very IT savvy, and a really good mate of mine, Anthony Carl, who was an IT guy, and and all of my staff were really supportive of me, which was awesome. Said, "Well, come on, let's sit down." And but what it allowed me to do was was put get all the thoughts out of my mind and get them on a PowerPoint, you know. And the amazing thing was, mate. It wasn't until I read, wrote that book. I hadn't seen that document for years. And I rang Carly. I said, Carly, have you still got that document we put together? And he delved into his computer. He said, yeah, I, I don't think it was the actual final product that was close. He said, I'll send it to you. And it was amazing looking back on it. But what it did was, as I said, it really galvanized my thoughts going into 2003, even though I coached for 10 weeks. And it's really what it was about was just having a real plan. You know, and part of that plan was to get the players involved and get them more involved in creating the culture of their football club and really where they wanted to take the footy club. Because one of the things I found was, even though the players drove most of the behaviours, I was captain of Fitzroy, and we were part-time, so it was a bit harder. But no one no one from Fitzroy really asked me what I wanted to do and how I wanted to create the environment and and build the footy club. It was really the coaches top-down, top-down. Yeah, and again, that was the way it was. But when I retired in 1998, I noticed things were changing. Players were becoming full-time, different philosophies, different coaching styles. So, yeah, it was a really good exercise to do. And thankfully, yeah, I got the job and we were able to execute on that on that um, document. Paul, uh, so I actually, and I think, you know, ignorance helps because it'll help me unpack your story a little bit more. So I didn't realize you were already, so you're saying you were already actually coaching and you had to present your vision and I suppose mission and how you were going to go about ways of working to keep the job. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. So what happened halfway through 2002, Rodney Ede resigned um, and they asked me to do the job. So I said, look, can you give me a longer contract? They said, no, you've got 10 weeks. Um, And then there was a a, a coach that um, left really out of the blue, left the team in Melbourne. And and then the jungle drum started beating and it looks like he's going to get the Sydney job. Um, so then we won six out of our last 10 games. The last game of the year was when Paul Kelly, I think, and Andrew Dunkley were retiring. I walked on the ground just to congratulate them. The players ran over to me and jumped all over me and we sort of celebrated. So it was, 
There's quite a few watershed moments. I uh, think in that moment, the club was like, gee, what are we going to do now if we have uh, appointed? And no one's, no one's ever come out and told me they did appoint Terry Wallace, but that's the rumour. What are we going to do if we have appointed him? What what are we going to do with Rusey? So then we better get him to present to the board. And yeah, so, yeah, that was all happening in the background. So it was quite a, an interesting time. Um, and, and yeah, it all worked out in the end, obviously. Why do you think the players... Well, they obviously respected and loved you, but why do you think they did? I think because I played with them was really important and they knew who I was as a person was was good. Um, I think they resonated with the message that I had. But to be fair to the players, they probably just liked me at the time. They didn't know where we were going to go because I hadn't really in the in the 10 weeks when you take over mid-season, I talk about it all the time, it's a honeymoon period, really. Generally, what happens is regardless of whether it's the best coach or the worst coach. They're sort of sick of that coach's message. And Rodney was a terrific coach, but the players yeah. were sort of sick of his message. So I get in 10 weeks. I've got nothing to lose. Yeah, we had a bit of talent. I didn't know how much. And we just, yeah, we just played good football. So to be fair to the players, I think they just liked me, but didn't really know what was in store. But that trust was really important. I think they trusted me and where I wanted to take the direction of the football club. And trust, trust is a really important part, whether it's a footy club or yeah, one of the things I've learned about trust, it, it's an action. If you think trust is a nice to have, it's not. Trust is an action. You know, it's built by actions and behaviours. And if you can compile enough of those actions and behaviours, you're going to gain trust. Yeah, which is really important with a player-coach relationship. But I think they just trusted me, you know, those last 10 weeks. And as I said, I've built on that trust over the years. And I've got a lot of really great friends from my time at, at the Sydney Swans that, are, that were players. So the Choose Ruse campaign, was that driven by the players or the fans? Sort of both. I mean, the players probably started it and then some of the fans got on board and they were placards outside the offices and, um, you know, outside the stadiums and all that sort of stuff. So again, it was a really strange time because it sort of built the momentum. Yeah, you know, on one hand, you had this you had Terry Wallace who was supposedly going to get the job. And the other hand, you had Paul Ruse, who was an ex-player who did come in and, and started doing really real. One was an untried coach. One was a an experienced coach. So it was a, I'm sure it was a difficult dynamic for the board and you know, the CEO at the time and Andrew Ireland. And yeah, but it's one of those things that we probably really haven't unpacked it because it didn't really worry me once I got the job. Did he have the job? Did he get, yeah, some people said he was paid out. Uh, I'm sure yeah. I could ring Terry. I'm, I'm friends with Terry and I've never had a problem. I'm sure I could probably ring him. So mate, yeah, what happened? Well, did you get paid out or, or what? But yeah, he's a good guy. I played against him. He was a contemporary of mine, played yeah. state footy with him. So there was no, yeah, no, no grudge between the two of us. It was just business and it just worked out, you know, probably, probably the best for both of us, really. Paul, how do you feel being a player helped and conversely hindered you as a coach? Yeah, firstly, helping. Relationships are huge now. Like, I think that's one of the biggest things. One of the things that I sort of grew up on is, you know, coach and players don't have to be friends and don't have to like each other. And it was real authoritarian. There was nothing against Wolsey and Parker. It was just the way it was. And, you know, in business, it was exactly the same. It was top down, top down, top down. Towards the end of my playing career, this was about building really strong relationships. So when I look at taking over at Melbourne and coaching Sydney, I didn't have to work on the relationships at Sydney. That was a huge advantage. I already, I already played with a lot of the guys. I already built really strong relationships. When I got to Melbourne, I had to build those relationships. So the advantage, I don't, and the disadvantage, 
to be honest, I don't think there was a disadvantage. You know, probably some of the old school commentators and, and old coaches may have said initially, yeah, you can't be too close to the players. But as long as I was, I, as I found I was honest with, like I played with Stewie Maxwell, was really good friends with Stewie, was a really good example. He was my first captain and we were good friends, good family friends, hung out together, did everything together. But as long as I was honest with him and he was honest with me, we had some good disputes and arguments around you know, some of the things I did and said as a coach. But as we respected each other. We were friends with each other. And someone someone actually mentioned this to me once. You should judge your leadership on the number of weddings you get invited to. And I thought that was a really interesting observation of how you are as a leader. Yeah, because to me, it's about honesty and communication and respect and driving hard standards. And I was really lucky. Yeah, Stewie wanted to be coached. Stewie was a great captain. Yeah, he wanted to be coached. He wanted to be captain. He wanted to drive high stairs. He wanted to hold me accountable as well. And he wanted me to hold him accountable. So it was a really, really good relationship. And the majority of the players at the Swans were the same. So I'm great friends. But I don't think there was a downside to having played with the players, really, which was which was great. Was there a downside ever, not so much in playing with the players, but being... You know, they, they say sometimes the best performers aren't necessarily the best coaches. What's your comment to that? Yeah, I think there was definitely a school of thought, thought around that. You know, that, that the more talented players probably didn't make the best coaches. You know, people talk about Kevin Sheedy, who was a role player back pocket. I don't want to underestimate Kevin as a player. He was a very, very, very good player. But that was just some of the narrative around with David Parkin, similar type player. He was probably a bit of an exemption because he was, you know, very high profile, very talented. But yeah, there was, there was a, certainly a narrative around that. I think the narrative was built around, and, and this is where it was false. I think the narrative was built around, oh, you know, players like X and Y and Z just got there on talent. That's not yeah. true. You know, mm-hmm. most players, yeah, Gary Wilson was a great example for me. He was our best player. He was our captain at Fitzroy, our most talented. But his, he was the by far the most hardest working player. So I think that was where the narrative went wrong, providing you had, yeah, learned really good habits as a as a player. Didn't really matter, you know, how many best and fairest or how many All Australians or how many premierships or state teams, as long as you had good habits. But I I could see where the narrative could come from. Um, but thankfully, I think that's changed a lot over the last sort of twenty odd years. Hey, your vision for the team was, um, and I'll, I'll repeat, my aim is to inspire, teach, and lead the Sydney Swans to become winners. What was the environment that you stepped into, Paul? Like for those of us that may not know footy back to front, like was the team really suffering? Was it a rebuild? Was there poor culture? Like what did you step into, mate? (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting because it's a good um, little history lesson. So I got there in 95 where they were really struggling. You know, Tony Lockett arrived. I arrived and then Stewie Maxfield, Kevin Dyson, Craig O'Brien. They got some really good young players. So when Rodney E took over in 96, we made the grand final in 96, had some successful years, and then just sort of started to drop off. It was seen as a rebuilding period by the media. The, yeah, um, as I said, Andrew Dunkley, Paul Kelly, two superstars of the footy club, superstars of the game. I think Darren Creswell played one more, ga- one more year under me. Yeah, Tony Lockett had left. Wayne Swash had left, superstar of the game. Yeah, so players were starting to leave. So it was sort of seen to be a bit of a rebuilding yeah. period. But probably more about how do we refocus this group and really own what they do 
And this is where the empowerment model came out. How do I get them to buy in to the Sydney Swans? What does the Sydney Swans mean to Stewie Maxfield, Adam Goods, Mick O'Loughlin, you know, Jared Crouch, Ben Matthews, all the young players, Leo Barry? What does it mean? What does it really mean to them? And that's their purpose. What's their purpose? Why do they, why do they, why are they here? Why do they want to drive the footy club? So when I talk about the vision, that was really what I was talking about. And I never really got too carried away where we were. You know, I think leading into 2003, we were picked, I think, by 12 of the 16 age riders to, to finish bottom of the ladder. Yeah, but that was their perception. I, I think it was never really my perception of the team. Yeah, yeah, really what I was trying to do was drive a process and then process drive outcomes. If you get your process right, the outcomes are going to look yeah. after themselves. And I say that the corporate world yeah. Now, and we're a really outcome-focused industry because everyone knows the outcome. Everybody can, you can look up the paper on a Monday and see what the ladder, yeah. see what the win and yeah. loss is. Yeah. You can't do the same thing with any yeah. other business in, in, in the yeah. world. You know, you can see the yeah. share prices, but you can't yeah. really see, you know, uh, did they win last week or did they lose last week? But footy, you can't. Yeah. So I was never really outcome-focused. I was really process-driven. And when you read that back to me, that's what that means. What's the process we're going to go through to be a successful organisation? Where did you adopt that methodology? Because, you know, I was reading that, you know, culture and kind of team dynamics and this form of thinking wasn't necessarily the norm. I mean, prior to that era, in your era, you had kind of people that were working and playing and there wasn't a whole lot of, I suppose, organizational psychology involved in what was going on and how you guys were operating as a team. Like, where did you adopt this style of thinking from Paul? Yeah, look, and I was really lucky. I think being associated with a footy club, you know, I was working at the time. I went down to Fitzroy as like a 16-year-old or 15 yeah. or 16 under 90s. I was so lucky with mentors. I talk about that all the time. Leadership is role modeling, right? There's any leaders out there that, yeah, want to be seen as honest and they're not being honest and they're telling the truth, then they're not honest. You can't say one thing and do another. That, that's not yeah. the way your personal brand works. So when I got to Fitzroy, I looked at the personal brand of Gary Wilson and Bernie Quinlan, two of the best players in the competition, and they were super individuals and hard workers and talented. So my, so when I, when I arrived and I started to form my opinions, they were, they were shaped by my role models. Yeah, Laurie Serafini, Mickey Conlon, Gary Wilson, Bernie Quinlan, you know, guys that had really good work at... So as I'm going through the 17 years of my career and I'm working as well, and then all of a sudden I see the ups and downs of the Fitzroy Footy Club. You know, I see the club going through crisis after crisis. You know, players are ringing me and asking me, and I was captain of the footy club. So when I got to write that document, when I became, I had a lot of experience. In 1998, I, I left Australia, went overseas, and I yep. went to the Chicago Bulls, the Chicago Bears, the LA Lakers, the San Francisco 49ers, the Denver Broncos. Yeah, the list goes on. I had an amazing experience. A really close mate of mine, Brett Stevens, was coaching Pete Sampras, the world's number one tennis player. So I got to hang out with Pete Sampras and see the way he trained and the way he thought and all those sorts of things. So I think because I was super inquisitive and also great role models, sitting in the coach's box, I talk about this all the time, was Jeff Polites, who was the CEO of Ford Australia at the time. He was sitting in my coach's box taking notes for me. Guys like Basil Sellers, who was an amazing businessman yeah so if you tap into those people mm. and you store this wealth or this library of information mm. yeah that's where it came from yeah mm. and that's where i become so process driven and started to change yeah even in, in as i said in a really outcome focused 
And again, my preparation, if I prepared well, generally I played well. If I didn't prepare well, then I didn't play well. So the outcome was playing well, but the, it wasn't like I wake up Saturday morning know. and go, I'm going to play well today. You know, the process that went through it, and then yeah. if I didn't play well, then I can have something to fall back on, or I might have to change something, or yeah. I'm not doing something right. Yeah, so I think the, the role models I had, I can't speak highly enough of them. Yeah, they inside of the sport, the club, and outside the sporting club, they were incredible human beings, and they they did went a long way to shape a lot of my beliefs. Yeah, it's really interesting, Paul. Like I think you know how you went to the United States. I mean, some of the better businesses here in Australia that I know and have worked for historically, a lot of them went overseas to understand best yep. practice. Funnily enough, I was reading the book legacy about the all blacks yeah. and they mentioned yeah. that they came and visited you guys yeah. right so like yeah. i think it's a really smart thing to be obviously led by curiosity yeah. what did you learn when you're in the when you went to the u.s particularly uh around you know organizations like the niners like i grew up like tammy in the bay area yeah. and the, the niners in the 80s and 90s were absolutely amazing yeah. um, you know under bill walsh and like, what were some of the learnings out of yeah. American football in, in those environments that uh, you were able to bring back to Australia? Yeah, absolutely. And bear in mind, so this is 1999. So it was sort of just on the cusp of professionalism of Australian rules football. Yeah, I, mm. I worked the whole time up until I went to Sydney. So sort of 95, 96, 97, 98. So there's some really things that stood out for me. Like, like everything was so intentional. I went to watch the yeah. 49ers train. It was it was unbelievable. It was like clockwork. Right. You know, for those of you who understand NFL, you know, the offensive line was training by themselves. A whistle would go. Then they'd join in with the, the wide receivers and the quarterback. Then another whistle would go and then the defense would come in. Everything was so structured. Yeah, my early experience of Detroit was, again, based on time. We'd just get down and train. You know, we trained super hard. We'd run super hard. We'd tackle. We'd, you know, we'd do all these things. I get there in 99, I'm looking at the 49ers train and go, this is unbelievable. It's like mm. clockwork. Mm. Everything is so intentional. Everything has a purpose and everything was was recorded. Yeah, mm. and they, and they were a really, so it was funny, one of the stories that I tell all the time is so I go back and Anthony Carlos said, when I took the job, I said, mate, we're going to record every training session. I'm like, oh shit, how are we going to do that? I said, I don't know, what do you reckon? Yeah, because I went to the Chicago Bears and they've, they've got an eight, they had an $80 million facility at the time. And they yeah. had cameras, yeah, that were hooked onto their indoor stadium at two outside fields, one with heating underneath it, yeah. at a full-size indoor field with cameras all around. So they, they wow. just take training, goes back to the to their IT section. So I go, Carly, what are we going to do? He goes, what about we try and get a cherry picker? I said, all right, well, let's check, get a sponsor. So he gets a cherry picker. He goes up on the cherry picker with a one-hand-held camera. But... Everything had to be intentional. That was one thing that yeah. really, really stood out for me. And we really changed. We taped every training session when I when I took over. That really changed. And we reviewed. We reviewed every training session, which we, I don't think had ever been done before. That was one thing. Denver Broncos was really cool at the time. And they talked a lot about character. And I remember talking yeah. to that because I was able to access a lot of different people. The head of the head of recruiting. I said, well, what do you do, Talon? He goes, if we, if there's a split decision, yeah. we'll always go with character. Yeah. Is he the ducks of the school? Chess club? Yeah. yeah. So what was he like socially? How intelligent? All that. So that really stuck with me as well. Yeah. That, that was really good to hear in, in such. Now that, that's changed a lot in America now, you know, and that's probably yeah. one of the things I've noticed since I've been over here. America's become a really talent-based 
because there's a lot of Aussies in in America now. I've spoken to a lot of them over the last, but I'm talking back in 1999. So it was awesome to go and do exploration and get access to. So there's probably a couple that, that really jump out off the page for me. Did the players play better because they knew it was being filmed? Like, did they take practice more seriously? I think so. But I also think because everything was more intentional, it wasn't like get to training and this is training. And I think that was probably, I talk about this, and if you're really honest with yourself, like sometimes I've got the training Monday night or Tuesday night, it was cold. I was was sort of semi-injured, but I was like, so I go to the club doctor and Garth Dicker, funny guy, I said, Garth, mate, let's still... And I was captain, I was pretty talented, and I had a good game on the weekend. And, yeah, I mean, if I'm really honest with myself, I'm probably thinking, I hope the docs just don't train. And yeah, well, where is he have the night? I'm like, oh, fantastic. Then I'd get a massage and, you know, I'd watch training and, you know, and I'd still play well the next weekend. It wasn't yeah. like I was, I sort of thought I was, but I think it just became more intuitive. Mm-hmm. Why am I at training? You know, what am I here to do? And I think, yeah, it was more so that. It was more so the players realised that we're here to train and we're here to get better, you know, and, and it is intentional. Yeah, because yeah. the other thing about training, what I train is, there wasn't a lot of method around it. We'd get out there for two and a half hours and we train really hard and we we do these drills and we joke yeah. about it now. We did this one drill called the channel. Yeah, it was 4v4. The ball would get kicked in the the defensive end of the ground. There's only eight players to take it from the whole length of the ground to the other end. Yeah, you know, and if you you were with Mickey Conlon, who was our quickest bloke on the team, it was fantastic because Mickey would get it, run the whole way, and no one could catch him. It was great, but if it if it got into a bit of a scramble, oh my god, it was so hard and so yeah. So I remember we never questioned that as players, but when I look back, I go, what was the purpose of that drill? You know, like so we wanted to be really intentional, yeah, about yeah. how we trained, and and I think that was the biggest thing when we started. And improvement of players, you know, that was the other thing. How do I get a player better, you know, um, by doing these things at training and, and taping them and showing them? And a lot of it was positive. We'd show a lot of positive stuff as well. Yeah, that's that's a really important part of it also. Did recording the the sessions and then customizing the training and skill development per player, like, because this is relevant in corporate, right? Like, if you are a good leader or manager... You know, I think a really good practice is to customize your approach per individual and help them develop skill. Like, did that increase the administrative piece? Like, did did it get much more complex as a result of kind of making things a little bit more customized? And how did you manage that? Yeah, the answer to the question is yes. But then it comes back to who's doing what role. You know, footy clubs are really good at, this is your role, get it done. And you can't kick the can down the road. Yeah, so if if I say, We've got a meeting at Tuesday morning and we're going to cut training. There's someone has to do it. What drives me crazy in the corporate world, there's two things that really drive me crazy and both to your point. One is no one wants to give feedback. And, and when you're in footy for so long, we only the only reason we tape training is not not because we want to doll on the players, because we want to make them better. Like, and feedback should come from the heart. Feedback should be because I care about you and I want you to improve. And the other thing is the corporate world's really good at kicking the can down the road and not making decisions. And I say this all the time, and, and I say this to all my corporate clients, we cannot ring up the AFL and say, well, look, I'm not ready to play on Saturday at 2 o'clock. Can, you, can we move the game next Tuesday? But the reality is in the corporate world, you can. Yeah, so what's the easiest thing? Rather than holding each other accountable, 
being un- understanding our roles, making decisions, working the timelines. It's a lot easier in some some instances just to go, oh, Rosie, can we move that? Can you move that Tuesday meeting from Tuesday to next Friday? I really can't do it. And they really develop bad habits. So when you introduce something like we did, yes, someone has to do it. Someone has to do the role and someone has to get it done. But the only reason we do it is to become a high-performing team. That That's the only reason we do it. And that's why there's, there's still some big gaps between yeah, the sporting world and the corporate world. There's, there's no question. I think the challenge of the corporate world, Paul, is there's a lot of room to hide, particularly oh, in you know, management roles. Like you could hide in, you know, in a footy game or in certain roles in business, like I would say sales, very difficult to hide. Yeah. Um, but I think to your point, you can kick the can and kind of manage upwards where I think in an athletic environment, particularly in a sport like footy where people are pretty simple and real and authentic yep. i think like it's very difficult to kind of shirk responsibility kick the can down the road and ultimately your performance is being monitored i i um i want to shift the conversation to a, a little bit of a direction yep. around uh, the relationship that you had as a coach with the management team i remember reading alex ferguson's book manchester yep. united and like he was pretty firm on you know the management keeping themselves as management and staying in you know upstairs so to speak like you know i read a little bit about the times that you had during the swans where you you know or maybe before your time i think rodney eads was a coach and there was a bit of interference from kind of the administration in terms of running the team what did that full piece look like and how did you resolve that? Yeah, I can tell you the story. And I remember to this day, we had a CEO that was an ex-Brownlow medalist, you know, so he was an unbelievable footballer. Yeah. But I remember this and it, it talks to your questions and they, you could tell. So when this happens, you can tell that trust has been lost somewhere. So yeah. he started coming down and taking players for training for, he'd come down in his suit and sunglasses and he'd come and take training. Now, again, he was equipped to do it because he was a brown light medalist. So he was a suit, but he's, he was a CEO of the organization. And I just remember as assistant coach at the time going, everyone can see what's going on. Everyone can see that, that the management has lost trust on in uh, in Rodney. And he'd come and the, the, the CEO would come and do cut vision and with the, yeah, and then show vision to the players on marking and all that sort of stuff. But the problem with that is once you start going outside your role, that trust is, is, is being lost. Now, that's not to say that if Rodney you know, doesn't instigate and said, you know, Kelvin's day was, Kelvin, mate, come down. Look, I want to introduce you. Whack the track yeah, on. Yeah. But it's about role clarity and it's yeah. about understanding where the organization goes. You know, that, for me, I'm huge on role clarity. Play your role, knowing your role what it is you know and, and that's, again that's not to say you don't use those resources yeah and rodney couldn't have used kelvin as a resource but when it comes the other way it just it just erodes trust yeah who are the centers of influence who's watching leaders are getting watched all the time so who's watching when that happens who's watching all the players are watching all the staff are watching everyone's seeing what's going on it's not like it's a secret that yeah you know, kelvin's coming down with his suit and tie on and yeah, you know, again, I want to only clear he's probably qualified to do yeah. this because of his talent level. But is that his role? No, not at that particular time. And that really eroded to, to me a lot of trust. 
But everyone's trying to do it for the right reasons. It's just someone in that moment's got to be strong enough to go, no, you, this is not your role. You're not doing it. Or come there, let's have a discussion around it. What does it look like for you? Actually, yeah, that's not a bad idea. Okay, let, we'll get your tracksuit, get you some runners. I'll introduce you to the players. So they know who you are, but we'll, we'll explain what that role is because yeah. that's going to make us better. Remembering... We shouldn't do anything that's not going to improve our performance and make us better as an organization. Yeah. And that's, that's a really good starting point. How are we going to get better individually? How are we going to get better collectively? I think it's an important point, Paul, like particularly for those managers in corporate that step into a new role and need to assert themselves and they maybe have dominant managers above them that whilst they trust them will have yep. a tendency to kind of overstep and come into their domain. I think it's incumbent for these individuals to create guardrails and to develop yep. the trust and, um, you know, processes with their leadership that enables them to have that uh, opportunity to lead without interference. So did you have to create guardrails? Like, did you have to set the expectations from day one? hundred percent. I think that was a big thing. It's a really, really good point. I remember, I didn't know how this was going to go over. Because I remember as an assistant coach, before the game, the other board were in there, the sponsors were in there. I remember as an assistant coach, this is absolute inner sanctum. Like these, these, we're talking about players about to run out the field and play the game. And all of a sudden in the rooms, there's like, yeah. I remember going to Andrew Island and saying, look, Andrew, I don't want, before the game, no one's in the room. So there is no one in the rooms before the game. After the game, yeah. inviting they're not, you know, we can talk about that. And I sort of thought, oh, here we go. Richard Collis will come back, who's the chairman. And, yeah. and no, no problems. People want parameters. I think that's, that's probably a bit of a misconception. But if we don't give them, so Andrew come back and said, mate, no problems. So then, then you've got to start to set the parameters around what you think, what your plan is. Yeah, what do you want to do? How do you want to execute? And for me, that was, that was a non-negotiable. And this is inner sanctum, guys. These are players. If you want these players to win, don't distract them. After, if we want to serve now, sponsors are really important. So this is the other side. Of it. Yeah. Sponsors are really important. Went to Melbourne. I'll tell you another story. Went to Melbourne, and Melbourne used to have um, their inner sanctum, who are really influential supporters. And met them. Yeah, know a lot of them still now. Really good people. Really important. They were allowed in the coaches' box. I said, no way. There's mm -hmm. no way known anyone's getting the coaches' box. But then what I did I was I worked with the marketing guys who were, said, okay, well this is what worked really well at Sydney. We actually brought them in during the week. And we had a mock match committee where they picked a team, got some party pies and yeah. So we put, loved it. They loved oh, it. And, we, and then we also did, I, I spoke to them before home games and stuff like that. So there's a give and take on everything. Yeah. This, this is my point. Like I want to take that back, but you need something from me. Okay. That's fine. I understand yeah. your job is in, in marketing and sponsorship is really difficult at Melbourne at the moment because yeah, when I, when I arrived, we won two games and lost 20. How can I help you do that? You, I'll, you take, I'll take this back from you, but I'm going to give you something in return. And that's a really important part of leadership as well. Mm -hmm. Do you think strong leaders as well test people in the sense like they, their dominance is their natural form of expression. But when you push back on them and show them that you've got it under control, they're like, yeah, okay. Right. Like I, I think, you know, like I, I think people, I do it all the time. Like I'll, yeah. uh, my natural instinct is to get involved in everything. Yeah. And when someone tells me, no, RJ, I got this step back. I'm like, okay, that's cool. 
you know, like, but I, I need someone to, to create that guardrail, if that makes sense. It's really great question, RJ. It's a really good question. We talk about the player coach syndrome at performance by design. And we talk about it all the time. Now, this oh. is the problem. I, I finish playing at Sydney. I start coaching. I cannot get out of the coach's box and go and play. I can't do it. In the corporate world, I become yeah, yeah. head of marketing. Yeah. And my role is no longer to play. My role is yeah. to trust the team. But yeah. I can still play. So what's the natural intent tendency? Because I can play, is I play. So then to answer your question, is it the chicken or the egg? Is it the is it the head of marketing not letting me play? Or is it me not doing my work? You know what I'm saying? And not yeah. saying I've got this. And it's probably a combination, but I tell you what it is more times than not. I just don't want to I'm comfortable playing. Yeah. No one's taught me about leadership. And that's what I've worked out in corporate worlds. Everyone's really technically good at what they've done, but no one's taught leadership in the yeah. corporate world. And to a certain degree in, in AFL, when I was, I just learned it because I had great leaders, but no one teaches leadership. So then we get to this exec team. What are we all comfortable doing? Playing. What are we being asked to do? Manage and lead. But no one has taught me how to do that. So the natural tendency is... Okay, that's that's one of the biggest issues we, we talk about at Performance by Design, all right? In your work, what's the key type of activity that corporates are usually seeking from you? Like, based on your experience in AFL, like, what are they generally looking for in your sporting repertoire and background that they feel can add value to their company? It, yeah, I think overall, I think what we do better than most is put the concepts that they understand they sort of understand what culture is. They sort of understand what empathy is. I mean, Brene Brown's done a lot on psychological mm -hmm. safety, relationships, but they don't really understand how it relates to high performance. And individually, I think what we do better than most is take all those concepts. And then once we've finished our initial workshops, okay, now I understand what culture is and how we can actually systemize culture. We have to create our own purpose, values, and behaviors. Once we do that, we then hold each other accountable to it. Profiling is really important, not necessarily individually, but collectively. We do profiling collectively. Understanding what makes you tick and understanding what meets our leadership group, building strong relationships, understanding each other really at a deeper level, and then how do we systemize feedback? And I think once we do that, 99 times out of 100, at the end of those workshops, people go, now I get it. I wasn't really sure what psychological safety was. I don't know what, what's his vulnerability thing as a leader. I don't really know what that means in the corporate space. What's feedback? Isn't feedback just a six-month review and you're doing this poorly and you do this well sort of thing? So in answer to your question, yeah, there's a little bit about the system, but overall, I think it's taking those concepts and then plugging them into the workplace and then people go, now I get it. Now I understand what it looks like. Moving to you personally, Paul, um, you know, I really like your, your relationship with Tammy. It's cool. I think that, you know, you guys have a real kind of power couple thing going on. And, you know, I know that she's into wellness and health and, and development of herself as well as others. How is Tammy and the work that she does informed your style? Yeah, enormously, you know. Um, yeah, we got married, uh, 1992, so we've been married for a long period of time. And, um, 
I always, it's funny, I did this thing for uh, my company once and it was, was around, I think it was around Father's Day as well. Or, yeah. And they asked me about Tammy a lot because it was about relationships. Yeah. I think it shocked the people in the crowd. They also laughed. I said, what's, what, why you and Tammy get on really well and what's, what's your advice about getting married? I said, marry someone you like. Like, you're spending the rest of their, your life with us. Marry someone you like. Yeah, you know, because we, we talk about love. Like, everyone loves, yeah, you love your partner. But what, what does like mean? You have similar views. You wake up in the morning and you actually like spending time with them. I've got so, I've got so many mates that go, so what, what are you doing today? Oh, come play. We're going to go and play golf. And then we're going to go to the pub. And you know, isn't your son playing footy today? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Think about think about what you do. And I say this a lot. If I gave you a million dollars tomorrow and I said you could spend it on anything, you're not going to spend on something you don't like doing. You know what I mean? <laughs> so your life is often defined by what you like. So if you like your partner and you have similar values and similar views, you're going to enjoy spending time with them. And then they're going to have an enormous impact on, not to say they don't challenge you, but we we started meditating together um, and then Tammy came in and did the meditation at, at Sydney. And, and that was literally life-changing for me and, and Tammy when we learned it. But also from the player's point of view, you know, and then we, we, yeah, Tammy was sort of groundbreaking and we were in terms of bringing that meditation into a footy club. And, and I want to say this about footy clubs. Footy clubs are fantastic environments because the majority of them want to keep getting better. Yeah, and they'll try things like acupuncture and, and all different things and meditation. I remember doing Pilates years ago when I was playing footy and yoga and all that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. So you want to be in a high-performing environment. Footy is a really good environment. So those senior players really embraced Tammy, you know, Adam Goods and Brett Kirk and mm -hmm. Ray Bolton and all those guys, and it was not compulsory. So Tammy's not only had a, a great impact on me personally, but professionally as well. Yeah, we wouldn't have won the premiership without her involvement at Sydney. We wouldn't have turned around. We were doing visualization before games at the Melbourne Footy Club. Yeah, you know, she would come in. I would talk to the players. We would then they would then visualize. We wouldn't have got the improvement from two wins to ten wins had not Tammy been involved. So both personally and professionally, she's had an enormous impact you know, on my life. Obviously, what are some habits that are really important to you, Paul? I mean, one or two or three. Yeah. Keep it really simple. I say to people this all the time, you know, probably part of where we're at in life is there's so many of these fad diets and fad, you know, like fitness things and all that sort of stuff. And, and I think it scares people, RJ, to be honest. I mean, you're, you're an ex, I think, ultra marathon runner, aren't you? Yeah. Yeah. Mate, let me tell you something. If you want to keep fit, put your runners on, go for a run. Yeah. It's not that complicated. Put a pair of shoes Put a pair of shoes at the door or go for a walk. Like that's, yeah. we have overcomplicated yeah. so many things. If you want to, if you want to be healthy, instead of a bag of chips, have a salad. Yeah. You know, then that's not to say you can't have a bag of chips at some point in time. We know it, but you have to hold yourself accountable to it. Right. And then get an accountability buddy. You know, like that's a really good way to do it as well, but don't yeah. overcomplicate it as an, Ultra marathon runner, mate. Not everyone's going to run an ultra marathon. <laughs> yeah, and you know that. Yeah, so don't, if you want to get to that level, fine. But let's define health really simply. Eat good food, more <laughs> good food than bad food, and <laughs> exercise. That might be taking <laughs> the dog for a walk. <laughs> and do something you like because you're yeah. more likely to create a habit by doing something something you like rather than something <laughs> that someone wants you to do. 
if it's golf, is it if it's tennis, mm. you know, if it's going down to the gym and boxing. And I think, again, don't necessarily let other people tell you what you like. Find something you like and create a habit out of that and just keep getting better every day. You know, just stack it on. Today I'm going to go for a five-minute walk. Tomorrow's going to be a six-minute walk. And then before you know it, suddenly you're walking for an hour, you're enjoying it, you walk around Albert Park Lake or the tan yeah. or whatever, you're walking yeah. with a friend, you know, something like that. So don't, my, my biggest thing is don't overcomplicate these really simple and basic concepts. People yeah. say to me now, you know, I'm, I'm turning 60 this year, my body's still really good, but I, I run for 3Ks, that's it, I'll do a hard leg. Yeah, one minute yeah. on, 30 seconds yeah. off. Really simple. I go to the gym for 15, 20 minutes. Yeah. Really simple. Yeah. I love the chocolate. I'll have a couple of blocks a night. Not yeah, yeah big block, but I break off a couple. Yeah. Okay. And I'll do that consistently. I'm not going to binge on something, yeah. whatever. So get really consistent, workable habits. But deep down, we know what's right and what's wrong. Yeah. yeah don't we? Really? It's not. Yeah. It's not that complicated. Yeah. I mean, I you know people will you know they they ask me these profound questions, and the reality to your point is like you move your body every day. Yeah. And I'm mindful of what you put into your body. Yep. More better stuff than shit stuff. You know, like yes. it's, it doesn't have to be overly technical, right? Like we yeah. don't have to. And I think we are in an age where, you know, with so much digital information and apps and, you know, our yeah. watch tells us everything that, you know, it's that whole thing, as they say in Australia, all the gear and no idea. I think there's yeah. a bit of that going on, right? Like yeah. just, just move, man. But um, <laughs> yeah, it's such great it, it advice, Paul. And, you know, we'd love to to have Tammy on the show. Yeah, definitely. I think it'd be really good to get her on the show to get her perspective. And I know the book that you guys wrote together was really a, a kind of a dual uh, yep. approach, which was quite clever and, and, and uh, dynamic the way it was done. But really want to thank you for your time on the show, Paul, for our audience that are going to look for you. Where can they find you, Paul? Like, do you have a website? Where, where are you at? Yeah, so if you want to go to the company one, www.performancebydesign.co. And look, I'm really accessible on LinkedIn as well. You know, if it's an individual question or something about yourself or something resonated today, you know, I'm pretty accessible on LinkedIn. Just send a, send me a message um, and I'll get back to you and, and, and help you out. But um, yeah, so really accessible, really happy to chat. And yeah, really enjoyed our conversation, RJ. Been fantastic to, to catch up. Thank you, Paul. Thank you so much, man. Hey folks, thanks for joining me on this episode. With all the options out there, I am super grateful that you spent time with me. I hope that you've received value from this conversation. And if you have, I've achieved my goal. Your support is really appreciated. If you really, really like the show or you want me to know how we can make it better, please do leave a review letting me know and the world know your thoughts, yeah? If you want to know more about Ultra Habits and what we're doing, go to www.ugventures.com. Co. Sign up for the quiz. You'll get some really good insights into the archetype in terms of your habits and how you can improve your habits in your business and in your life. You'll also get a weekly newsletter with some blogs, episode updates. I promise you we do not spam. I absolutely hate spam and I think it's super unprofessional. It's all about value. So anyways, folks, until the next episode, have a great week. Take care.